If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Why across Nazi-occupied Europe did some people choose to resist the Third Reich? This is the question at the heart of Halit Kohanski's book, Resistance, which has just won the 2023 Wolfson History Prize. In it, Halleck considers how resistance movements developed across Europe throughout the Second World War. Here, she talks to Rachel Dinning about the different types of resistance, from open partisan warfare in the occupied Soviet Union to dangerous acts of defiance in Norway. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm going to start off with a very general question. Why did you want to write a book about resistance? Well, my last book, The Eagle Unbowed, Poland and the Poles in the Second World War, contained a lot about resistance because the Poles resisted from the first day to the last day of the occupation. So I was curious to know, how did this fit into the European picture? Was it the same or did resistance have a different timeline? Sure. And your book takes a chronological look at it. It goes from the start to the end of the war. And why did you want to take this approach with it? Why did you want to tell it in order? Well, I felt that when people hear the word resistance, they automatically assume armed resistance. And that only comes in the latter third of the war. And so I wanted to know and to explain what happened in the earlier part 
And so it's divided into three parts, asking questions. Why resist? In the second part, who was the enemy? Because once the communists become involved, it all becomes more complex. And the last part is looking at what role did the resistance play in the Allied victory? Sure. And you mentioned already that armed resistance, which is perhaps what people think of stereotypically when they think of resistance, came in maybe towards the end of the war. What were some of the sort of pivotal moments where resistance changed? Well, at the beginning of the war, Allied defeats were so complete and so total and the fighting performance had been so poor that it made no sense to resist, really you might as well learn to live with the German occupation. It was different in Poland, and I think we'll probably, I hope we'll develop that point. But in the West, there was no urgency to armed resistance, and indeed collaboration was actually encouraged. Marshal Petain was in favour of collaboration. Even in the Czech protectorate, the leader there, Hacha, called for collaboration. And each country had a collaborating either government or civil service. So those people who resisted from the start are, in a sense, unusual. But their resistance was vital because it had certain factors like we're not accepting this state of affairs. Through the clandestine press, they waged the war of the mind. How to convince people that it's actually worth continuing resisting, worth believing that their countries would be liberated eventually. And in the second part, the, once the communists become involved, it becomes a, a whole long war. And it's the German policies, such as the Holocaust and most particularly forced labour, that actually inspires the resistance. And so finally, as the course of the war changes, and it looks as though the Allied victory is more likely then, of course, resistance starts to develop because they want to play their part in the liberation. I wanted to go into the type of people who did resist. So what type of person or group would resist? What drove some people or groups to do so and others to perhaps stay quiet or complicit? Well, very irritatingly enough, the people who did resist from the start are totally hopeless at explaining why they did so. You get well, something needed to be done, and I wanted to do something. How could you not do something? It's very difficult to know exactly what their thought processes were. I mean, what we do know is that some local studies have been done of, you know, the sort of social breakdown of who resisted, but those only very limited and restricted to certain areas. So I couldn't really draw on those for a picture of the whole of Europe. But it was very unpredictable. I mean, I use the example of a student in his fraternity in the Netherlands, assuming that everyone would be indignant about the German occupation like he was and want to do something against it. And instead, he found that some wanted to try and make their way to Britain. Some were interested in the idea of resistance. Most wanted to do nothing at all. And one was later seen in the uniform of a Dutch SS. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging 
so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Did you ask yourself the question when you were writing this book, what would I have done in these different circumstances that people found themselves? What set of circumstances would lend itself to you being a resistor? Oh, I think so. You know, certainly I know that at certain ages, until certainly in my youth, I was far too reckless. So I would have been part of the early resistance and almost certainly have been shot or imprisoned for it. Later, I learned it's better to become an organiser and get other people to do things. But yes, I think I would have resisted because I think I would have looked at what was happening and decided, I don't agree with this. I want to do something. At least I hope so. But, you know, none of us can really answer that question. No, of course, not until you're in the circumstances. How might an ordinary person be pulled into a resistance movement? What sort of avenues did they take? Usually by accident. Someone might decide they're going to write a sheet of paper. I mean, one of the underground newspapers started on a child's printing press, passes it on to a friend who thinks would be interesting, asks him to make 10 copies, passes it on to 10 people who make 10 copies. That's how the clandestine press began. Similarly with escape lines that often... People say it was the knock on the door saying, do you happen to have some male civilian clothes to spare? Or could you hide someone for a couple of nights? Or do you have some food? It was often a very, very gradual process. And people then were either discouraged and did something once and no longer wanted to take the risk, or they became more active and gradually more organised. And I'm curious, what role did women play in resistance movements? How significant was their contribution? Their significance was tremendous because, particularly in once forced labour was brought in, a man to travel around had to carry with him a document showing he'd been legitimately discharged from the army he'd been in and that he was exempt from forced labour. Women didn't need that. They could move around much more freely and arouse less suspicion. And that meant 
they were very important in the clandestine press, not only in distribution, but actually in writing the things. I think it was estimated on the comet escape line, that's the longest lasting and longest in length line, 65% at least of the helpers were women. Women could also carry identity cards to people in hiding. They even carried weapons. Most Germans are not going to look under the dirty baby's clothing, but there could be explosives underneath. And a question that runs through your book that is particularly interesting, who is the enemy? So it seems obvious to say that the the Germans are obviously the enemy, but it's not always that clear cut, is it, when it comes to the resistance? Perhaps you can expand on that a little bit. Well, when the communists joined the resistance after the German invasion of the Soviet Union, they were fighting for a new world, which was against the pre-existing liberal democracy. So in some countries, but not all, it brought them into direct conflict with what I call, for a better term, the democratic resistance. And so you either get sort of a situation of near civil war or actual civil war, which happens in the Balkans. And also you have incidents when countries such as Norway with their fascist leader Quisling wanting to Nazify the country. And so there's the resistance to the enemy within. There's the war on the collaborators because even if people were anti-German, they might be more anti-communist and see the Germans as protectors against communists. There were various territorial wars in the forests of Eastern Europe. There, there were many, many enemies. And how risky was it to resist? And also, I suppose, how did the Germans tackle resistance? Well, that depended where you were, how dangerous it was. I mean, right from the start, the Poles learnt as early as December 1939, that the Germans would be prepared to execute 100 Poles in reprisal for the death of two Germans. This 50 to 1 ratio actually became codified in German anti-partisan warfare doctrine after the invasion of the Soviet Union, but it was evident in Poland right from the start. In contrast, in the West, you're much more likely to be sent to prison and even after the communists became involved, after a couple of Germans had been killed in France, orders came from Berlin, you must kill 50 in reprisal. And the German commanders themselves were saying, no, we don't need to. That will unsettle the country. We are still in control. And of course, in areas where you have the anti-partisan sweeps in the occupied Soviet Union, in the Balkans and in parts of Poland, no law existed. The Germans would just kill whoever they wanted. So your book integrates many resistance movements across the whole of Europe, and you've spoken a bit just now about the differences and how the Germans addressed resistance in the East versus the West, for example. What other differences did you pick on taking this big geographical sweep between resistance movements across Europe? Well, if you were in Poland, by 1943, you had nothing to lose by joining the resistance because the state of terror the hands of the German was such that terror, in fact, lost its power to terrorise, that every time you left home in the morning, you didn't know whether you'll come back in the evening because you might have been taken for forced labour or you might be held as a hostage or 
They just might want to execute a certain number of people and imprison others. So you had nothing to lose. It took longer, much, much longer to reach that state in Western Europe. And in fact, in France, you only see the Eastern methods of warfare appear after June 1944. The Balkans, again, there was a lawless situation and the occupied Soviet Union. It was really in the East, the Germans were the most ruthless and they were much more selective in the West. Did the severity of German occupation correlate to how strongly people resisted? I mean, you mentioned Poland just then. It was sort of, you had no choice but to resist. It seems like it was a direct correlation. Certainly correlates quite closely because in Poland, Poland was broken up as a country, originally split between the Soviet Union and Germany, and then with part of its territory annexed into the Reich. There was no government, no senior civil service, no education above primary school level. The only purpose of the Poles was to be slaves of the Germans. In the West, they had more of a purpose. They just was economic exploitation. And so long as they got hold of those resources fairly freely, they, I wouldn't say quite tolerated a certain level of resistance, but they viewed demonstrations that did take place and strikes as something they could control. And so they didn't need to act with such severity. Also, there was quite a widespread use of the collaborators and traitors in the West, more so than in the East. I was curious as well which country or perhaps group of people were most effective in their resistance. Well, this is always a difficult question to answer because what is effective? No country liberated itself. So liberation often was working alongside the Allies. And there, of course, the French resistance had the advantage that a lot of resources were devoted to it. Similarly, once Italy was split and Italian resistance developed in the north, they were also in close contact with the Allies. The greatest potential was probably Poland, but the home army there never received sufficient number of weapons. But I think the most effective example of unarmed resistance comes from Norway. The unarmed resistance in Norway was directed not so much against the Germans, but against Quisling's determination to Nazify the country. So he started off with a legal system. So the Supreme Court resigned. So then he tackled the church, or the deacons resigned. The trade unions and professional associations, they went underground. Sports competitions, they stopped competing. Then finally he went for the teachers and insisted on a Nazi type of education. So the teachers went on strike. And in a wonderful example of how to cripple a government ministry... The resistance organised a template letter that parents could send to the Ministry of Education saying, I do not want my child to receive this sort of education. Well over 100,000 letters arrived within one or two days at the ministry. And someone had to open them all. So in the end, Quisling turned round and said to the teachers and the resistance in general, you've spoilt everything for me. You avoided focusing on resistance by Germans within Germany itself, if you could call it a resistance movement there. Why did you decide not to include this? 
Well, one thing that was in common between all the countries occupied by Germany or Italy was that they wanted the defeat of the occupying power. The German resistance wanted the defeat of the Nazis, but they did not want the defeat of Germany. And indeed, many of them joined the resistance fairly late on because they could see that the Nazis were leading Germany to defeat. That was their motivation. The other thing is that within Germany, resistance was seen as treachery. Not so in countries where resistance to Germany is... I, I try and avoid saying that anything was patriotic, but it's seen as being in service of your country. I wanted to bring up the subject of myth-making around resistance. There's, there are a lot of myths we have about those who resist. Perhaps you could outline some of the, the biggest myths that we have about resistance that are prevalent today. Well, I think the biggest myth was that they contributed largely to their own liberation, to their country's liberation. And that simply isn't true. I mean, that was begun by de Gaulle in August 1944. France has liberated herself, forgetting the presence of Allied troops. This is copied in other countries as well, that, particularly in Western Europe, that there was a time of self-liberation. But in fact, if you look at the uprisings and the attempts to liberate part of their own territory, as I've gone into, they lead to utter disaster. The Germans, even in defeat, were powerful enough to turn round and crush any uprising, any efforts at self-liberation. So I think that's the principal myth that goes on. The other one is just how much armed resistance there was and how effective that was. Well, these people were untrained. So, yes, there are instances where the armed resistance is useful to the Allies, particularly in the liberation of south of France. Less so in Yugoslavia, certainly less than has been claimed. It also shows the dangers of it, because by Christmas 1944, the British army is landed in Greece and is in Athens defending the Greek government and the Greek king against one of the resistance movements it had provided weapons for. You mentioned again the armed resistance myth there, which is what people generally think of. Could we give our listeners some examples? We've, we've talked about a few already, but just a few examples of, of resistance that wasn't armed, but was effective. The other thing that did not involve weapons was the provision of intelligence. And this was something that ran throughout the war, right from 1940, where due to extreme clumsiness, SIS or MI6, whichever you prefer, presence in Western Europe was effectively wound up. And so they had to rely on the resistance to provide intelligence on simple things like when were the Germans going to attempt to invade Britain? A lot of information on sailings, on the development of new weapons. And this goes throughout the war until it was actually the resistance that provided the most important information on the V weapons. One of the big questions, I suppose, is how much would you say resistance forces contributed to winning the Second World War? Do we overstate it? Do we understate it? What's your take? Well, I think, again, it depends where you are geographically. In the West, the resistance played a very important role if you combine the armed resistance, the clandestine press, 
the battle of the mind. This helped the very smooth transfer from occupation to the restoration of a liberal democracy. In the East, however, it was very different because the whole line of countries from the Baltic states down to the Black Sea had to face the same problem. Who was the enemy? The departing Germans or the advancing Soviet? So the occupation by the Soviets meant that the resistance against the Germans was never seen so much as a success because those who had fought had been loyal to the governments in exile, not to the Soviet Union. And so there the resistance forces see the end of the war as marking their defeat. And then I was going to ask you a couple of questions just about the process of writing the book. I mean, it's a mammoth book. It's over a thousand pages. Quite a feat. Um, how long did it take you? Were there any surprises along the way? Well, in the end, it took me seven years to write, research and write. I think the biggest surprise is just how much resistance there was in each country and also how political it was. And here I'm not just talking about communists against Democrats, but also the, a lot of people are thinking of the future state of the country, of economic reforms, that they want social reforms, they want. They are seriously considering the future because they see that the past with the liberal democracy before the war that had led to the Great Depression and ultimately to war, allowed war to happen, was a failure. So they want to turn the system into something that will be a success. Now, I've played down a lot of the political differences because I don't think the average reader wants to know exactly what the syndicalists wanted compared to another grouping. But yes, it, it was very political and very divided resistance. You have no French resistance movement or Belgian resistance movement. There's several different ones within each country. What's the overarching thing you would like people reading this book to take? What message would you like them to take from the book? I think two messages. One is that resistance can be done by anyone. You know, we might look on them as supermen and superwomen now, but these were very, very ordinary people who came out of the shadows, did extraordinary things, and then at the end of the war, most of them retreated back into the shadows very few ever recorded what they had done. That's one. And the other thing is, you have to remember resistance was extremely dangerous. And time and time again, the Germans would break up groups, networks. And time and time again, new leaders would emerge. They knew the risks. But the resilience that they showed, I think, is the most admirable quality of the resistance. That was Halit Kahinski. Her book, Resistance, The Underground War in Europe, 1939-1945, to is out now, published by Penguin, and the winner of the 2023 Wolfson History Prize. To hear interviews with previous winners of the prize, head to historyextra.com forward slash Wolfson dash history dash prize. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.